Welcome to What Didn't Kill You, where we explore personal and professional stories of adaptation in the face of adversity and the causal relationship between pain and growth. I'm your host, Michael Silverman. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and student of life that is fascinated by how professional missteps, adverse life circumstances, and pain are harnessed by people and organizations to inform future triumphs and bring deeper meaning to their life and work. Join me as we explore the mindsets, philosophies, and narratives of those who embody Friedrich Nietzsche's timeless aphorism, what does not kill me, makes me stronger. Trip Gebhard, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you, Michael. I'm glad to be here. Trip, I'd love to get started by learning a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Sure. My name is Trip Gebhard. I'm with PWM Planning. I'm managing partner of our Denver office. And we are a financial planning firm. We also focus on the behavioral finance side of wealth. And our goal there is to look at the entire financial picture of somebody's family and their life, as well as the, you know, human capital within the families and try to figure out, you know, how to best serve those families in their own value system. Very cool. And Trip, I know you've had you know, quite the journey on this path career-wise and, and also personally. Can you share, how'd you wind up getting started in the wealth management industry? So really by chance, okay? I think it's, when I talk about, when I kind of talk about how did I get in this you know, business and so forth, I think for me, it's, it's interesting because you know, I grew up in wealth. We've talked about that. I had wealth on both sides of my family. My mother's side of the family was, I would say, you know, very wealthy, very successful. My grandfather started, uh, he was the creator of the wealth. And so I watched, you know, his success. And then ultimately he died of alcoholism at 65. And I saw my father or my uh, uncles and my grandfather kind of fight it out, if you will, over family money. So I've always really, it's interesting because I've always been very intrigued with wealth and how the effects that it's had on people. That has no reason why I got in the business. I mean, it was it was literally by chance. I had a very good buddy of mine who was working for Invesco at the time. They were based in, in Denver and we were out partying and, and he basically said to me, you know, I, I think I was in between jobs and he's like, you should come work for Vesco. And, and I went and I interviewed. And my only question to him before I went in for that interview is, do they drug test? Which his answer was no. And, and I got the job a week later. So that was how I initially got in the business, was with Invesco for a couple of years. And then I went to work for my cousin who was in the computer uh, staffing and consulting business. And I did that for a few years and ultimately made it back to, uh, being in the wealth management role in, I believe, 2002. Got it. And you mentioned the family environment you grew up in just outside of St. Louis. Can you share a little bit more about what that community was like and socially what that was like growing up there? Well, you know, for me, it was it was what I knew. So I didn't really know any different. You know, it, it was the 12th largest or 12th wealthiest municipality in the country, right? I think from my vantage point, you know, watching, I was very, very, I think in my family, I was the, the one person who sort of looked around and I didn't 
it wasn't acceptable. Some of the behaviors that I saw, particularly between how my mother was treated by her family. You know, my grandfather raised three nephews, very, very successful, you know, men. And he, he did that as a younger man himself with kind of the old uh, World War II greatest generation value system, family, country, service. And when he became successful and he moved to St. Louis and he was in the barge business and the uh, oil business, um, had a refinery. And I believe it was, you know, my uncles were kind of raised with a silver spoon and they saw my grandfather who, you know, an amazing man, but just enthralled with success, worldly success. And you know, the mansion on the hill and all the toys and, and gave his, his sons everything and couldn't really understand as, as they kind of came in the company and started taking things over, just could not understand why, you know, they were trying to take the company away from him and run it into the ground. And, and, and actually that is what happened. So two years after my grandfather died of alcoholism, the family fortune was lost. So watching that whole circumstance, you know, watching that whole scenario play out, being intimately involved with my mother, who we were very, very close, and uh, she was very close with her father and brothers. And, you know, she was kind of put in the middle as the emotional kind of, you know, whipping post, if you will, but she had no power. They wouldn't give her any power. So for me, being the oldest son, I was just emotionally very attached to all that angst and all that pain and kind of tried to protect her in some ways as she tried to really protect her father, I think, from her brothers. But I just was very, very close to that. And it was very painful as a child. So and then, you know, aside from that, it's just growing up around a lot of wealth and seeing these patterns repeat itself. And that's always been something like, you know, that I've been very in tune to. And I've since, you know, later in my career, I've, I think I mentioned to you earlier, I've, I've read countless books of wealthy families that have run into, you know, tragic endings and, my mom's side of the family just has, you know, a lot of uh, skeletons in the closet and a lot of damage that was done. And I, I believe that a lot of the circumstances did not need to play out that way. They could have been planned better. They could have been discussed. And I, I think one of the biggest issues that with my mom's family was they didn't have these conversations at the dining room table. My grandfather left, you know, education of Dartmouth, Stanford, Wash U, you know, like they were supposed to create these men and, and I was going to give them everything. But what they didn't have is they didn't have the, the love of the employees. They didn't have the, you know, that drive. I think what I've seen with, you know, generational wealth, kind of that ripple effect, if you will, is we sort of end up protecting, you know, our children from life circumstances, right? And we don't, you know, have the generations below don't have all the the skill sets. And, you know, you start out with my grandfather, he was financially poor, but he was purposefully rich. And he went out and created great things. His and his sons didn't have that. They had kind of the entitled attitude towards life. What about the uh, experience on your father's side? 
You know, that's an interesting one. You know, dad was one of two and I have his namesake and then Carl Bauer is, I'm the third, trip the third. And I would say that um, on my dad's side, you know, he was, um, Carl Bauer was quite the, uh, how should I say it? You know, he was a tough man, you know, born in the 1800s. He actually raised my grandfather. Okay. So he, my grandfather was the oldest of four and he raised my, as I said, my grandfather and ultimately was very much in that kind of paternalistic role within his family. And so I think with my dad sort of inherited money and was told, you know, that he wasn't, you know, he couldn't have the company. We're going to sell the company and put this money over here and you could live on it the rest of your life because, you know, you won't amount to a hill of beans kind of deal. And so I think dad was kind of looked at that money as a wet blanket. And we've had these discussions, you know, he said, you know, it was the, you know, he's told me at times it's the worst thing that ever happened to him because he couldn't live an authentic life. You know, I think we've worked through and talked through a lot of those issues. And, but I think for a long, long period of time, it actually hampered him and really his whole life. And, and he will stand by that. You know, it kept him smaller. It kept him from going out, getting jobs. It kept him from, you know, having to buck up and go for it and, and find a purpose and a mission. He sort of just, he says he hid behind it. So. Interesting. Trip, you mentioned your grandfather died of alcoholism. And that was something that was prevalent in your family growing up. Can you share a little bit about how your relationship with alcohol started and where that went? Certainly. You know, I think for me, I've thought about this quite a bit. And I was asked recently, like, you know, by somebody, it's about giving up alcohol. And I, I got sober in 2003. But, you know, my relationship with alcohol was... I started drinking at 12, which was pretty common in the area that I grew up in. And yeah, it wasn't like I was doing it alone. I had plenty of friends doing it. But um, I think for, for me, it was just always there. I mean, alcohol was always there. And I, you know, I grew up with my mom and dad would fight about my grandfather's alcoholism. And, you know, it's sort of been this thing our whole lives of, you know, my mom would say, well, G-Dubs, that's my grandfather's name. He died of depression. He used alcohol because he was depressed because his sons did this to him, right? And for me, it was just kind of always there. I will say that, you know, starting to drink at 12, it was, it felt wonderful. I felt like, oh, this is, you know, kind of makes me feel normal, if you will. And look, it, it's not that everybody was an alcoholic, but the community in, that I was in, I mean, there was just a lot of drinking. It was always there. And so I knew actually at uh, 16 or 17 years old that I actually had a problem with alcohol. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know at any level what that meant. But I, I just remember thinking, like, I don't think I have a read on this. And I believe that, you know, that was 16, 17. I, you know, started looking at recovery and so forth at 24 and I didn't get sober until I was 33. So I can't really, you know, from seven to 12, my grandfather died when I was 12, from seven to 12, you know, A, the business was falling. It was, you know, the all the angst around, you know, who's in charge of the business, who gets to call the shots, the 
ability for the company to maintain all those things. And also my grandfather being in and out of hospitals because of his alcoholism. So I remember drinking at his funeral. And so again, it was just kind of always there. I think for me, when I finally did kind of say, you know, enough's enough, I was just tired of being tired, right? I was, and um, it had been, you know, somebody had mentioned to me, it's like, well, it was like my best friend. And I'm like, I don't really look at it like it was my best friend, but I didn't really have a choice if that makes sense. Sure. What was it like when you started communicating that you might think you have a problem or you might want to think about not drinking anymore? You know, I think it's kind of like an inside job at that point. I, for many, many years, but I think when I finally kind of did interesting story, I mean, that's uh, one of those things that I look back at and, you know, I was the one in, you know, my family that kind of said, Hey, this enough's enough. I'm not going down this road anymore. So I think there's a very, very strong reaction from people around you that, you know, it's, it's actually quite, you know, scary. Like, where's this guy going? What's he talking about? You know, is he going to force this on me? And so, yeah, it was, there was a ton of headwinds, particularly within my own family. But, you know, it was difficult for Donya's family as well, because, you know, again, people don't know when you just announce you're going to quit drinking and when everybody's drinking it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't commute to people. I think there's a, a tendency for people to look at themselves and want to protect, you know, their lifestyle, good, bad, or indifferent. It's just, that's the nature of it. And, and when I look back at my early, early days of recovery, there's no doubt that, uh, you know, you have to go to kind of extremes early on and then you level out over time. And I, you know, I have wonderful relationships with, you know, my family and my in-laws today. And, you know, my, all of my siblings are, I have three, two sisters and a brother and we're, we are all sober and our spouses are sober and my parents don't drink anymore. So it really has kind of come full circle with our family. But in the beginning, it was anything but. <laughs> and so when you mention headwinds, you know, people are actively opposed to this idea and, and taking it personally? Yeah, I mean, I think so. You know, growing up in in that environment, um, you know, particularly my, I think my parents, I mean, they had seen some of their friends that have maybe, you know, gotten sober and kind of disassociated themselves or whatever. They had their own reasons to believe that, uh, you know, becoming sober was not the kosher thing. I, I think for me, like, you know, there was so much in that kind of lifestyle, right, of that I grew up in. When alcohol is kind of everywhere, there's going to be people that have difficulties with it, right? And it's it's kind of rampant, I believe, in a lot of circles, but it's still a shameful, unspoken um issue. I mean, as are a lot of different mental health and addiction issues. So um, it was, it was like, don't shine a light on, you know, derelictions or whatever that we have in our family, or it was a negative reflection. Like I, you know, my, I think my parents looked at it, like, what did we do wrong? And so, you know, it's just very challenging. And I think that, you know, when you grow up in an alcoholic, you know, family from above those ripple effects that fall down, you know, there's protection that needs to happen at each, each level, 
So it's just the nature of, you know, hey, we all might have this, but let's not talk about it and let's all, you know, hold it inside and not tell anybody what our problems are. You mentioned the environment that you grew up in and, and sort of some of the more challenging aspects of, of wealth and, and addiction being around you. As you became an adult, before you got sober, did you feel those patterns, you know, playing out again in your life? And how much of seeing seeing those elements drove you into a different direction? Um, you know, I, I think that's a great question. And I, Michael, I think it's for me, it was, again, I knew from a pretty young age that, you know, this alcohol thing was dangerous, right? And, but I didn't really know how to get out of the way of it. And so, you know, from a standpoint of, you know, looking at different patterns. I mean, I, my grandfather, as I mentioned, died when I was 12 and I knew for five years that he died of alcoholism, yet I was drinking alcoholically as a teenager. And so I kind of knew that I had, I think even as a teenager that like at some point in my life, I was going to have to give this up. I mean, I, I really knew that. And when I made an attempt to get sober when I was 24 years old, I specifically remember, you know, saying, okay, well, I can do this. Okay, I can, you know, get through this at this stage, but at some point in my life, I will not be able to. So I almost gave myself a timeline of, you know, my drinking and and knew that I would have to make some changes. I actually told my roommate in, in I was living in Denver. I told my roommate that, uh, you know, I'll probably have to do this when I'm like, you know, 10 years from now when I have a, when I'm married and had a couple kids. Well, it was nine years later and I had two boys. So I don't know how all that plays out, but it's sort of like, I just knew that there was a lot of challenges and I knew I was playing with fire, but I didn't know how else to do it. And a lot of that, Michael comes from having money. I mean, I had, I inherited a trust in my early twenties and, you know, a significant amount of money that I pretty much lived on in my twenties. And, you know, I had jobs, but it really kept me from having a career. It kept me from having to like work through challenging bosses and work situations. When the going got tough, I could just, you know, hey, I don't need this. And so, you know, on the one hand, it allowed me to do a ton of fun things, but it really kept me, you know, as not a productive member of society, if you will. And I believe you and I have talked about in the past, but it's it's the very, very best thing was I ended up just kind of blowing through that money and eventually had to figure out how to get to work and have a life. And it's, you know, at 50 years old, I got a lot of friends that inherited a lot more money than I did at, at, at a younger age. And um, they're now just running out of, they ran out in the last five, 10 years. So it's, you know, I'm fortunate enough that I ran out earlier. Even my, you know, I talked about my dad's situation, like, you know, he never, he was never put in that situation. So I think he just feels that that's the same kind of spirit that kind of kept him small, if that makes sense. Yeah. And did that bring you back to St. Louis? I know you mentioned you were living in Denver for a while. Did running out of money bring you back to St. Louis or or what was the pull back to that community? Yeah, you love the seminal moments in life. But yeah, that was a big one. You know, it was interesting. It was it was really twofold. I've come to realize that, well, first of all, we wanted to, we were, my, Donnie and I, we had, had relocated out to the East Coast. We spent a couple of years out there and we wanted to move back to Denver 
And my mother and father said, Hey, if you move to St. Louis, will you do 50 grand for a, a home? But we, you know, I said, well, will you do that in Denver? And the answer was no. So that was one, you know, but I think the other big draw was I kind of knew my parents needed the support or I felt that, you know, I mean, call it a family draw, call it a, you know, communal draw. But I think more than anything, it was honestly like I kind of felt like I needed to be around my family to help them. And my wife, who was from Michigan, she was also, for one reason or another, she preferred at the time, she wanted to live near one of our families. Actually, we were getting married and starting a family too. So there's all those circumstances. But I would say the big thing was, you know, really being around my family. And you mentioned going back because your family needed you. One of the things that you've mentioned in the past is sort of this development into family leader while your your parents and your your siblings are adults. Can you share a little bit about sort of how you've adopted that mantle and and what that means to you and, and how that's led to you coaching clients to do the same? Certainly. You know, I think that's kind of an interesting one because, you know, as a child, I think one of the things that I always had in me and it just is this this curiosity and um I was often told you know you don't need to ask that question you know you're you know sort of like why do you always ask just you know accept some things are the way they are and and it was sort of like if you were poking around like you were the issue and you know my parents although they have a you know loving relationship they've been married for I don't I think it's 55 years now they were the Bickersons. And so there was a lot of, you know, arguments and tension and so forth. So, you know, for me, watching kind of, again, the the difficulties that my mom had within her own, within her family of origin, and then in our family, I sort of felt like it was my responsibility to kind of fix the family, if you will, make mom okay. And so I I kind of owned that role as a kid, but I felt like I shouldn't have this power, right? But I did. And as I got older, I was very, very, like, even when I went to college, like my mom would call me about, you know, the, the, my younger siblings and so forth and the problem. So I was kind of always put in that role. My mom and I kind of had this, you know, spousal kind of relationship, if you will. And so, you know, And dad was, you know, I kind of mentioned dad, not very, very involved. And we've had great conversations about that and and why all that happened. But, you know, he just didn't provide some of the things that my mom needed and, and vice versa. So in June of last year, my my dad asked me to be to take over as leader of the family, which I really didn't 100 percent know what he was talking about. But a year and a half later, I figured it out. And for me. It was really just, you know, let's get these expectations of, you know, traditional roles within a family. And let's just, you know, what does everybody need at their individual level? What does the family need? And so that's been a really, you know, a progress. But, you know, we moved my entire family of work, well, my sister's family and my parents out to Denver. And then, you know, dad's living with me now. Mom's living with my sister, Kitty. And so, you know, we've really kind of taken over the, done the energy shift, if you will, and now are moving into kind of the phase two, which allows dad to live his life the way he wants to the next 
15, 20 years and gives me the opportunity to, you know, afford him that opportunity. I mean, he's living in my house. And I think there's just a lot of things when it comes to that leadership role of, of being able to kind of understand the needs of the different family members, if you will. And, you know, it's not my job to fix anybody. It's not my job to tell people how to live lives, but it's, it's to help them get into a better place. And, you know, we've worked on that quite a bit this year. And, and, you know, one of the good things that have come out of, you know, COVID, I think is, you know, not the, <laughs> there's much to celebrate, but there's a lot to celebrate. And I think some of that is just human relationships that we have. And, you know, I've been given and afforded the time to, to move into that new role um, for the benefit of everybody and including my, including my parents, especially my parents. You talk about sort of that, that concept of leadership within a family. I mean, I think within an organization, typically the good sign of a leader is one that recognizes that they're part of a system and that they're sort of subjugating their immediate reactionary needs or, or traditional needs to that of what's good for the system, as opposed to, you know, what's in it for me or what's good for me. Is that a, a fair comparison to make that you're kind of, you're saying there's more important things than my position as son or, you know, your position as, as parent or your position as, as sibling? Is that kind of a, a dynamic that you have to explore with this concept of family leader? Most definitely. I mean, I, and, you know, you kind of grow into that, right? I mean, you initially, you know, you, you do think about yourself a lot, you know, when this thing started coming down and, and, you know, really it's just, okay, this is the way it is, but now we're going to put labels on it. And that, that requires us to, to kind of do work to get in that direction, if you will. But I think the way that I kind of see it is, yeah, I mean, it's becoming less and less focused on yourself and really focusing on the, on a longer term outlook. And, you know, haven't mentioned it a ton today, but I mean, that's, for me, I really, I look at, you know, when I work with a person or counsel people, to me, it's always, well, what's the generational, you know, ripple that's falling down and, and how is it a, you know, how's it affecting, you know, the perception, if you will. And I think for me, it's, it's been, you know, kind of understanding and really owning the role that was, I've always had, if you will. And I know that's a long kind of way to roundabout way of saying it, but I've never really, I think owning the role was more, you know, the, the challenge for me of, okay, this is what I have to do. And then stepping up to actually do it and, you know, not losing yourself in the process, which, you know, is, is really challenging when you're talking about emotions. And, you know, when we moved everybody out here, it was, you know, you're, you're as a 51 year old man, you're living with your, your parents, right? <laughs> and so you kind of get thrust back into your childhood and you have to learn how to you know, best serve them from a 51-year-old standpoint and not a seven-year-old standpoint, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And you mentioned that it affects the way that you think about serving your clients. How has, you know, wrestling with some of the more toxic aspects of, of growing up with wealth and addiction, how does that go into your practice and thinking about how you can best serve your clients? Well, I think one of the things that I kind of, for me, it's been an authentic kind of process, right? Like, who am I? 
what is my training? What is my experiences and so forth? And then being able to lead with a whole heart. And again, we, you know, our core business is financial planning. The behavioral finance side of it is really tools to help our clients, you know, find out and live within kind of their value structure. And there's so much conversations and in-depth strategic thinking around how money impacts other people within the family. And that's, you know, to me, it's very, very intriguing. And when I give public talks, I get as many people that tell me like, hey, I grew up poor and I'm 55 years old and I make a ton of money, but I still feel poor. And I realize like I can retire tomorrow based on hearing your talk because I'm chasing something that I didn't even know I was, you know, chasing this acceptance of, of enough or whatever the case may be. And so those conversations that lead to more meaningful designs and plans and how family members look at other family members, if you will, for me, you know, being in recovery, having the experience that I grew up in naturally, I attract a lot of families that, you know, unfortunately are kind of having these issues have already kind of developed. And so you might have, you know, failure to launch kids or addiction kind of issues within those families. And that's really where my expertise, I believe, is most honed in on because, you know, I have the relationships, I've, I have the networks to kind of, you know, we're not counselors, we're not you know, part of the uh, recovery team, but a huge part of what I see is the inability for families to heal through either addiction or certain issues. And it is always evolves around money. So I understand I've seen enough of the failures, both personally and professionally of how money's done damage. So it's putting those protection mechanisms in place or when we see something's broken, try to figure out how we can best rearrange things, retitle things. You know, I was just talking to an old client of mine yesterday, just an amazing, amazing individual. But uh, he was telling me, you know, the, the worst thing that ever happened to me was I got all that money because, you know, within a few years, he had lost everything. And it, it, the tale was pretty tragic, included a death and everything else. And that was a huge lesson in my, in my career to have that experience and to watch, you know, how it went down. And, you know, this individual actually said to me, he's like, you know, if I could do it all over again, I never should have been given that money. It should have been doled out to me on a monthly basis for the rest of my life. So, you know, when those type of things happen and, and I've been around kind of the recovery world enough and grew up with enough life and death situations that to me, it's worth fighting for. It's worth planning for. It's worth having these discussions. And, you know, that's really how I lead and how I guide my clients. Seems like you could imagine a scenario where people are coming to you to fix some of these things. I mean, recognizing that you're not a counselor, you're not a therapist, uh, and you don't hold your hold yourself out as one. But these are all issues that money really can't fix. Money can't fix addiction. Money can't fix broken relationships or, or lack of communication. So when you're dealing with wealthy clients that are coming to you and saying, hey, how do we fix this? How do you sort of address that? Because this is these are you know sensitive issues that you know, it's not necessarily uh, the case that you can just throw money on that. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, 
I've had a few close deaths. I've had some some deaths within some of my wealthier clients and with their kids in opioid addiction. And and when you kind of go through that process, you know, something happens at least within me to say like enough's enough, right? And but also I think an important key to that is like I'm not you know, again, not a counselor, definitely not a, a savior. Like I can't, I'm not going to save these people. Right. But I can, I can have discussions with them. I can help guide them. I do have a lot of conversations with, with my 20 something kind of failure to launch kids as I mentioned earlier. And it's, it's, you know, I'm that kid, right? Like I am sitting across the table from I that 22 year old. And I understand what it feels like to be that 22 year old. Right. And not having purpose, not being happy, having money, but what good is that when you don't have, you know, healthy relationships and so forth in your life? So, you know, a lot of it is just, you know, it's, it's having the, you know, having the conversations, mentoring, because you don't know what that's going to do to somebody two, three, four, five years down the road. Now, there are circumstances where we get a lot more involved with, you know, helping, you know, add different clinicians or different people or make introductions to get people in a better place. And again, that's kind of some of the, in my natural network that uh, I have a lot of those relationships. So it's not, you know, but that's not, again, like, I think it's important to kind of remember here that, you know, you meet people where they are. Most of the people that are attracted to us are people who kind of know what we're about and they want something more or they want us to help them fix something, if that makes sense. And that's that's really, I think, you know, me personally, I have other, you know, partners at the firm. And I think, you know, we all have really, you know, unique skill sets and experiences and 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 this particular area that we're talking about when you, you know, failure to launch addiction, multi-generational wealth. That's just the space that I know pretty intimately and can provide, I feel, some of the best services. Are you typically, would you say in your clientele, dealing with the initial wealth creators or some generation after that? I would say it's kind of a mix, but I would say majority are going to be first generational wealth. You know, whether that be 75%, I couldn't tell you, but it's a large percentage of numbers. So we work with a lot of business owners as well. So, and then, you know, obviously I'd say, yeah, just a mix. I mean, it's that, I would say majority of it is going to be on the wealth creator side. And I ask because it seems to me a lot of, you know, besides the addiction issues, a lot of the sort of seemingly toxic narratives or um, patterns that you can get into start to really get away from the wealth creation and into, you know, away from wealth games and into status games. So away from, Hey, I'm building a business and I'm reveling in what it means to be a, an entrepreneur or, you know, a manager of assets. And I enjoy that game. And that's really all it is. And the, you know, the net effect is it throws off, it throws off wealth or value of some sort, but then into, oh, well, we inherited wealth. What does that mean? You know, we've got money. What does that mean? We have the the following memberships or the following place in society. And that means another thing too. So there seems like there's a, a waterfall, particularly when you get to some of these generational issues that you've mentioned, seen in your own family and others that get away from 
the sort of original intent of, of the wealth creators? Is that a fair kind of observation? And if so, how do you try and break that pattern? Well, first of all, you have to want to break it <laughs> or else there's no way you're going to break it. And I, you know, it's interesting because I, you know, in talking to, and, and I guess kind of, the, I do work with second generational wealth and a lot of the work that kind of I've been doing, I, I'd say in the last year is working with some second generational wealth that it's incredibly damaging relationship between the father and the son, let's say, in one case, the daughter. And there's a ton of money there, but the resentments, the bitterness, the fears, the anger, it's just the money is, is there. It's in between the two people or the, the father and the children. So, you know, how do we best create something that is going to work for everybody? And obviously, as you know, that requires a an understanding of all parties that want to heal that way, you know, and sometimes it's, we're talking about families with a lot of money and a, you know, 35 year old, 40 year old that has never worked a day in his life. So to expect this person who didn't finish college or whatever to go and, and make the type of money, I mean, you know, you you put them in a house, it's sort of like everything's already done right? Like what's the incentive, but there's an addiction or something on the side. So it's kind of setting, you know, maybe clearing the path for some of these people to live healthier lives without a constant reinforcement of negativity or something like that. But, you know, I think where we try to encourage people is, I mean, and, and again, like I, you know, talking to this individual that used to be a client of mine, I mean, he's, you know, never been happier. He's got a sales job. He's like, I bought my shirts. I bought my shoes. I pay my rent. You know, he's like, I've never been happier because he's earning his living now, you know, and even with supplemental income, I believe that, you know, people have to have a purpose in life. And if your only purpose is to manufacture fun or manufacture excitement, well, you're going to be left feeling pretty low most of the time. It's that, you know, and I'm not saying that, you know, people can't find purpose in other ways, but it doesn't have to be with a job per se. But, you know, that's kind of the sad thing that I hear from a lot of people. It's, it's they actually feel that they're at a disadvantage because of the money because they know that they're missing certain skill sets and certain drives and so forth. And it seems like the, maybe one of the classical ways of finding purpose is you go out in the world and try different things and see what turns you on and see what you're good at. And it, it puts you on a particular path, whether you're following your passions or just, you know, get out of school and say, well, I got to find a job. And, you know, you start getting exposed to different things how do you coach people's children, whether they're, you know, actual children or adults in the style that you're describing to finding purpose when much of their needs are taken care of? Well, again, I think it's, if you want to get better, right, is the biggest key. And it depends on when somebody comes to us, what the circumstances are. And a lot of times it's, you know, you're having a conversation. One of the things that I've learned is, you know, the very, very best that we can be is ourselves. And 
So by sharing our experience, strength and hope with people, explaining, you know, our circumstances. I mean, one of the reasons I do this today is because, you know, my clientele is there, a lot of which were my family or their child was me. And, you know, I want them to understand that there is life after this challenging time. So, you know, adversity is key. I mean, I really do believe adversity is key. And I think it it kind of, I said earlier, it's like we, that purposeful, rich, you know, entrepreneur who went out there and built this, you know, like my grandfather protected my uncles from a lot of life, you know, skills. And, and so it's, it's helping people understand that, you know, happiness is a byproduct of past performance and service to others and having, you know, helping them find, you know, what is your true calling and getting away from the, let's try to manufacture our excitement or our fun. Let's actually find a purpose. And, you know, if you can communicate more clearly your values and, you know, staying within that value structure, if you will, always to, you know, to make better financial decisions, to make better, ultimately better life decisions. You know, it's really helping, you know, what are your skill sets? What do you want to do? And how do you want to go about, you know, living your life other than the current model that's kind of been given to you? And how do, how can parents allow for their children to find that adversity if it's not necessarily going to be apparent to them because of their level of comfort, say? Well, I'm not, you know, as a, I've learned more from my kids than I have from anyone else. I think, you know, it's interesting and the best way I can describe that, and I'm not like, you know, perfect in this, any stretch of the imagination, but I think it's worked out somewhat well the best example I can do is my son, Cole, my oldest. And, you know, we were looking to move to Denver probably two, three years before we actually made the move. And we talked about it even longer than that. And the whole time it was, well, we don't want to move because Cole's doing so great in school and sports and his life. And, you know, he's our oldest. So you're the, you think about him the most, just natural parent things, um, you know, and, we didn't want to rock his world. And we were fearful that, Hey, you know, you moved to Colorado, it's going to be hard on him, you know, and he's going to go through a lot of challenges and he, you know, he's going to start smoking weed. He's going to, you know, he's going to get into the bad crowd and all these things. And, and quite frankly, a lot of our fears kind of became reality, you know, and he lost his place on the football team. He lost his baseball he got in with the wrong crowd. He said, dad, I was willing to, you know, be friends with anybody who like smiled at me, you know, so he learned what it's like to be used. He went through all these challenges and injuries. And when it was all said and done, and it was very difficult, you know, when it was all said and done, he basically, you know, he said the best thing that I ever gave him was the gift of adversity of moving from, you know, our community back in our small community back in St. Louis to here, because he had to, you know, find out who he was. He had to understand what it was like to be used and, and what that felt like, 
and, you know, came out the other side and he's still to this day. He's, I mean, he thanks me all the time. He's for doing that to, because as hard as it was for us to watch, to see what came out of it was amazing. And again, that was, you know, it's, I can't really, you know, I didn't like do that saying, Hey, I want to give Cole adversity. I, I still went with, uh, you know, leading with fear a lot in that area, but, you know, you look at the outcome and it's, it's true. I mean, everybody that has, you know, in my family grew exponentially just from the, you know, the pain of change, if you will. So I guess my question in that, or my answer in that is, is don't look for ways to cut corners and to keep your kids from feeling certain things and experiencing certain things because, you know, that, you know, and it's a tricky slope, right? You don't want to see your kid in pain, but at the same time, that's where that's preceding his growth or her growth. Do you ever look back on kind of the the tools in your tool chest that you've developed from this journey and and think about, you know, what if your grandfather, when you were seven years old, walked in your office right now as a prospective client and how you'd kind of coach either him or, or your other forebears? You know, I've never thought of that. That was an awesome kind of question. Like, I, I don't think, well, it's interesting. So my grandfather, he... Interesting thing about him was in my relationship with him was I at the very end of his life, like I was his best buddy, like the two of us were really tight as ticks, which, you know, he was kind of like my God on earth figure. And, and towards the end of his life, I don't know if it was the last year or two, but he had become faithful again, which he had lost faith and, and, um, you know, kind of shunned the church, if you will. So I feel like I kind of got him at a you know, he felt that he had failed in life because of what had happened, what was happening with his sons and the company. And uh, he was obviously depressed and at the end stages of alcoholism, but he also started gaining his faith back at the end of his life. And so, but I don't think he would have been a, a type of client. And it's interesting that you asked me this. He wouldn't have been the, the client for me because I don't think he wanted help. Is quite the honest answer. I don't think he wanted to, you know, maybe at the very end, he would have said, hey, how do I fix this, you know, mess I created? But that wasn't kind of what was important to him towards the end. I mean, I think, unfortunately, you know, the, the pomp, the power, the social status, you know, all those things were so important to him, you know, once he moved to St. Louis. I mean, he didn't even drink before he came to St. Louis, he was in Southern Illinois, a coal miner family, Baptist, you know, just a totally different man. And, and hearing, talking to my parents and my mom, especially like about, you know, all the different, like what he was like. And, you know, she admits, you know, like he just was so enamored with the world and being, you know, a high member of society and powerful positions and all, you know, that was just very, very important for him from being a small town, you know, Southern Illinois um, coal miner family. So, you know, that's, look, I am all about wealth and wealth creation and opportunities for families. You know, I just think, you know, where my kind of expertise personally is in is helping you know, people understand the full picture, right? Like it's not all this, it's the full picture. There's good and there's bad in everything. 
and let's talk about how it's affecting you and your family and, and some of the decisions that you're making or, or thinking about making. And I just don't think my grandfather would have been the type of client that would have been attracted to me. <laughs> I, I, I just, I really, it's an interesting question. I thank you. And you mentioned something I think that's powerful is you said he's got to want help. And that's, it seems like a parallel both for, you know, wanting your services in a very practical way, but also the path of, of addiction and recovery. How do you address that if there are folks listening to this right now, or if you have a client and, you know, the observation is I've got a, a son or a sibling or a daughter that's that's dealing with addiction, how do you address that? And if they don't actively want to find help, what do you do? Well, again, we're not clinicians and we don't get like, you know, a lot of times when I get those type of clients, it's more along the lines of it's coming from somebody who's kind of looking for, well, I mean, a lot of times I've been in, in this, you know, recovery kind of world for 17 years. So I'm kind of thinking professionally right now more than in my, in my normal life, but you know, I would say that a lot of times when clients come to us, there's kind of a defined problem that we're trying to help them through it, if you will. But we're not clinicians. So if there's anything that I, I just have a, a great bench of, of referral networks for quite a few different types of individuals that I can get people to for the proper help, whether that's anger management or, you know, child, for children with this special kind of issue, if you will. But, you know, if somebody's not wanting help, I mean, you know, it's sad, but we, we live in a, you know, a time where, you know, there's a lot of people, I think this year in particular, I, I would guess it's like, you know, way worse. I know it's way worse from talking to quite a few people. And, you know, when it comes to recovery itself, I know for a fact that it has to come from that individual and all the hot air in the world is not going to move anybody into doing something that they don't want to do. So I don't know, to answer your question, I'm kind of thinking more on the personal side. And, you know, I've told hundreds, if not thousands of people about like, for instance, Al-Anon, which is the support group for an alcoholic. And I think, you know, what I've learned in my own personal journey is, you know, if you're really, even if you have somebody within your family that has an addiction, like you have to learn how to set boundaries and so forth, but, you know, you have to do work yourself. And that's the, you know, to me, and there's so many qualified counselors and groups that work with families to help with that, that, but we can help with the conversations, but again, we're not clinicians. So it, that's a tough one. And especially today with, you know, I think depression's up 850%, anxiety's up close to 800%, and the addiction counselors and different people that I've talked to, it's near impossible to get in any place right now for help. And that's just given the nature of where we are with, with COVID and the isolation and everything else. How often in your experience, and, and maybe this is more, you know, personally than professionally, but how often is it the case that you know, this notion of rock bottom has to be found before somebody goes and starts wanting help in that, in that context. To me, it's like, is, you know, the old saying is it takes what it takes, right? For my own personal experience, it's just when I was done, when I surrendered and wholeheartedly surrendered, that's when, you know, I was able to kind of move into a better place of understanding. But I mean, that's, it's, you know, I, I've seen people 
die alcoholic deaths, which is the worst kind in my opinion, and never get it, never hit rock bottom. And then, you know, you see mere potential, you know, problem drinkers that, you know, give it up and go full speed into a more productive life. So that's a tough one. And I think it's the way, best way I can describe it is I think it's kind of dependent upon how far you are in your disease and also how far you, how big your ego is. I mean, how hardened is my heart? You know, how am I leading with, if you have a armor of ego, like my uncles did, they were never penetrated, I think because of pride. So I don't know if I answered that question properly or, or not. That makes a lot of sense. It's kind of dependent upon how are you willing to, or when are you going to crack one of the two? Are you willing to get, you know, fall down or are you going to keep walking through the pain? And that's the weird part is because I've seen so many people just keep going and keep going. And it's almost like a suicide in itself, right? They know they're walking towards it, but they just will not, you know, admit that they don't have the answer and just say, hey, Michael, will you help me? They don't have that in their vocabulary or in their psyche. They just don't. Yeah. It seems like you need that moment really in, in any in any challenging circumstance for your armor to be pierced. And whether it's, you know, you lost someone and you're grieving or you're on an entrepreneurial path and you got to pivot because the marketplace is telling you, hey, you know, what you're doing isn't working. It, it's it, you've got to embrace the pain and sit with it and understand what it means as opposed to just sort of hard-headedly moving forward and you know finding that nuance of when to listen and when to rush forward seems like uh, a lot of the basis for life and sort of existential exploration yeah that's a great point you know it's sort of like you think about it and it's like well what if i didn't make this decision at this moment in time and some of those, when I look back, it's like, I didn't even really make that decision. I think it it was made for me, if you will, which is interesting. And, but yeah, there's something, you know, all this is, it gets back to, you know, you can lead the horse to water, but you can't make them drink. I kind of say, well, that horse will always know where to find the water once, once you show them. And you don't know when that's going to come. I mean, I, for me and my own growth and my own, you know, development, you know, when I reach a higher level of consciousness, all of a sudden, it's sort of like I can see, you know, five or six dots that just connected, like, I didn't even see those before, or remember that they happened in my life. Does that make sense? Sure. They sort of just all of a sudden, these five, 10, 100, whatever they are, circumstances, situations in your life sort of all get connected. And that, like, oh, that makes sense. So that's Paradox of life is you live it moving forward and learn about it looking backwards. Yep. There you go. Well, Tripp, this has been great. As we're kind of coming to the end here, is there anything else that you'd want to share with the listeners, whether it's about addiction or wealth management or, you know, just dealing with adversity that you can think of? Well, you know, I just think, you know, I think we've covered quite a bit here today. I think with kind of as it pertains to, a general kind of what we have talked about is I would say that when you look at your family, when you look at your values, if you look at value in the dictionary, let's say there's six different uh, definitions of value. Okay. Five of them are going to be, you know, monetary, right. And 
only one is is going to be about relational and and how you you know value relationships and so forth and i think to me when i've gone through that you know exercise and working with you know strength finding and value finding for our clients it's amazing because you know most of those aren't monetary in nature so just to wrap up here trip if people want to get a hold of you reach out to you find you what's the best way to do that the best way to reach out to me is going to be email and that's my first initial t my last name gebhard g e b h a r d at pwmplanning.com. And if you put that, we'll put that in the show notes. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Send me an email. I'd love to answer any questions. This is kind of my, uh, the love of my life, you know, is doing this type of work. So happy to talk about it with anybody. That's great. And if somebody who's listening is dealing with an addiction issue, is there a good place to go to, to learn more about resources there? Well, I would say that, you know, you can look at uh, the, you know, online, there's a lot of resources for, you know, AA reaching out. There's numbers you can call, you know, hey, look, if you're in a bad way, reach out for help. This is a difficult time. And I've noticed, I think you and I talked earlier, you know, just general, you know, I've had some really hard discussions with a lot of people that are suffering right now, just with the, with the isolation and so forth. So, I think the one thing that I've noticed is that like people, a lot of people in general feel that they are the only ones going through what they're going through and that nobody's calling them quote unquote, but they're not calling people either. And I just think that that in itself is uh, when we start to get isolated, uh, you know, we start moving into more of an isolated mode. And I think a lot of people is just obviously getting, you know, wearing thin. So just reach out, be around people as best as you can, especially when you're not able to see them physically. That's great. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Trip. Really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. It's been fun. Always fun. All right. Take care. Take care, bye. Hi, it's Michael again. Thanks for listening to this installment of What Didn't Kill You. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to share with friends, subscribe, and review. You can continue the conversation and share your own stories of what didn't kill you at whatdidn'tkillyou.com. And you can follow along at what didn't kill you on Instagram. I wish you great fortune, growth, and clarity as you navigate your own path. And I hope today's conversation may have contributed in some small way. See you next time.